It was April 1953, 65 years ago, that one of our most admired presidents signed one of the most shocking edicts in modern American history. It was the height of the Cold War, and Dwight Eisenhower had only recently taken office, amid fears fueled by Senator Joseph McCarthy that subversives hiding within the U.S. government were a danger to the national order. It was in that context that Eisenhower signed Executive Order 10450, declaring that, alongside communism, sexual perversion, and those were the words that were used, were a threat to national security. Ike's executive order became the trigger for a massive purge of the federal workforce. In the years that followed, tens of thousands of government employees were investigated and fired for the crime of being gay. The full story of Executive Order 10450 and its terrible consequences has only started to get the attention it deserves in recent years. But now a new book has cast fascinating new light on the story. It's a biography of the man behind the executive order, Ike's first national security advisor, Robert Bobby Cutler Jr. A blue blood, progressive Republican from a prominent Boston family, a Harvard graduate, a wealthy banker and U.S. Army general during World War II, Cutler was one of the most influential staffers in the Eisenhower White House and oversaw the drafting of the harsh anti-gay executive order. What was not publicly known at the time, but which was revealed in the new book, is that he was also a closeted gay man, tormented by his sexual identity, infatuated with a young national security staffer many years his junior. How did a gay man come to help write an edict that caused so much harm to gays throughout the federal government? We'll talk to the author of the book, Ike's Mystery Man, The Secret Lives of Robert Cutler, on today's episode of Buried Treasure. Because people have got to know whether or not their president's a crook. Well, I'm not a crook. I told the American people I did not trade arms for hostages. My heart and my best intentions still tell me that's true. But the facts and the evidence tell me it is not. I did not have sexual relations with that woman. There will be no lies. We will honor the American people with the truth and nothing else. I'm Michael Isikoff, Chief Investigative Correspondent for Yahoo News. And I'm Dan Clydman, Editor-in-Chief of Yahoo News. And we are joined now by Peter Schinkel, a St. Louis journalist and the author of this amazing new book. Peter, welcome to the podcast. Thank you for having me. I got to say, only in uh, recent years learned about the story of the executive order when we were doing the um, uniquely nasty, when we were doing uh, uniquely nasty a documentary about the U.S. government's persecution of gays, and it's such it was such a shocking order, especially in today's context. But the idea that there was a guy, Robert Cutler, behind it, who was a closeted gay man himself, is kind of akin to learning that Roger Taney, the author of the infamous Dred Scott decision, was a secret African-American slave. It's hard to come up with an analogy. But Peter, tell us how you got onto this story. Well, it was back in the summer of 2006. I was on a family vacation in Rhode Island with my mother and father. And uh, one day, I asked my mother and her sister, who was there that day, tell me a little bit about your Uncle Bobby. I'd heard that he had an association with President Eisenhower. 
but I didn't know the depth of it at all. So Bobby Cutler was your great uncle. Correct. Right. And did you know him? Had you I never met, met him? him. He okay. died in 1974. Right. And he was one of five brothers born and raised in Boston. Mm-hmm. My grandfather, John Cutler, was his eldest brother. He was the baby of the five. To fast forward to that family vacation, that's where my mother and her sister revealed that he was gay. Mm-hmm. And um, knowing that the 1950s was a time of remarkable strictures in American life, I began to suspect there was a significant story there right away. But presumably at this point, you didn't know his role in overseeing the writing of this executive order, 10450. Correct. I had no idea. How did you find out about that? I found out about that by going through the files at the Eisenhower Library, where I made a number of trips over the years, and going through the files, and um, that's when it began to come out. And what was your reaction when you saw that, given his own personal history? Well, I was amazed, and I immediately began to try to figure out what exactly did he know about the order? Did he understand the impact that it would have? Was he actually a person of anti-gay animus, or was he a victim of the anti-gay attitudes of the day? And I began looking for evidence that where we could try to understand what exactly was going on. What did we know about Ike? What did Ike feel about gays? And the answers to those questions are difficult to dredge out of the materials because these folks didn't write down this. The people who wrote it down would be, say, McCarthy or Hoover, who, as you pointed out in your very fine documentary, uh, Uniquely Nasty, issued a memo calling for uh, agents around the country to report sexual deviates, as he called them in that memo. Sexual deviates program, yes. Exactly. So that there's put in writing, we're going to go after these guys, but Bobby was... uh, didn't put a lot in writing about why he wanted this. One piece of evidence that came forward was earlier in 1953, almost one of the first scandals that hit the administration was Ike's nomination of Charles Bolin, a very experienced diplomat, to be the ambassador to Russia. And McCarthy immediately held this up and began saying that he was a security risk and began, the rumors began going around the Capitol that he was a security risk. That was a coded term for homosexual. And indeed, the files reflect that he had collected from the State Department allegations that he was a homosexual. The fact is that he was also at the Yalta Accords and it was uh, translated for Roosevelt and that he was uh, deemed by McCarthy to be too liberal. And that was really the source of McCarthy's animus to Bolin, right? He, he viewed Bolin as part of the liberal establishment that was selling out the country. The allegations about Bolin's private life were completely uncorroborated. Uh, Corre- completely, the, yeah, completely. Right. And he was just using the homosexuality allegations to achieve a political goal. Mm-hmm. But ultimately, Ike stood by him. And won a vote, which is one of the first defeats of McCarthy in Congress by Ike. And it was after that grueling experience, however, which was a national drama, by the way, where the word homosexuality and sexual perversion were never said or written about publicly, but this entire drama played out in the nation's capital. At that time, Ike said, gosh, in a comment to Secretary of State Dulles, we should try to avoid this happening in the future. We should get these things out. And so it seems like Ike was hoping to have 
sexual perversion allegations investigated before his nominees came into the public. So he didn't have to face the grief he got over the Bowen nomination. Correct. Now, that's a beneficial interpretation of what I was trying to achieve. So, Peter, your book sheds all of this light on this uh, tragic history and these terrible policies. But it's also an incredibly poignant and painful personal story of your great-uncle, Bobby Cutler. First of all, tell us about how you learned about his private anguish inside uh, the White House, the documents that you discovered, and then tell us a little bit about that story. Sure. When I went to the Eisenhower Presidential Library to do my research, they connected me with a man named Stephen Benedict. And Stephen had actually been on the Eisenhower campaign train in the fall of 1952. And he worked rewriting speeches and performing a broad array of activities in support of the campaign. It was there on that campaign train he got to know my great uncle, Robert Cutler, who also was working very closely with Ike, writing speeches, crafting policy positions, and generally keeping the candidate company, telling jokes. He was a very amusing, entertaining man as well and could cut the tension of political situations and and raise the candidate's spirits. So Stephen who was then much younger, he was about 26 years old at that time, had got to know Bobby, who was then, of course, in his 50s, and they became friends. After Ike won the election, Stephen introduced Bobby to Stephen's former lover, who was a man named Skip Coons. And Skip was a Navy intelligence operative. He was a Russian speaker. At the time, he was working for a CIA front called AMCOM Lib and living in Paris, helping to launch anti-Soviet radio broadcasts. He was as vigorous a patriot as you, as you could imagine in those days. After his experience working with the U.S. Navy as an intelligence officer in China, he wrote his dissertation at Princeton, basically accusing the Truman administration of turning a blind eye to what the Soviets were doing to advance communist interests in China and to help the Communist Party under Chairman Mao win and defeat the American ally, the nationalists. So anyway, I've gone off the track here a little bit, but the point is that um, Stephen introduced Skip to Bobby. Bobby hired Skip to work on the National Security Council staff, and Bobby quickly became passionately attracted to this young man. He was quite young, right? He was. He was about 26 years old as well himself. And uh, again, Bobby was in his 50s. So you tracked down Stephen Benedict, who at this time has got to be in his 80s, That's right. right? Living where? He was living in upstate New York at that time. Upstate New York. He had been on the national security staff himself? No, Steve had not. He was a a White House staffer, and he would not have been on the national security staff himself. Right. Right. So you call him up because the Eisenhower Library told you that's who provided all these documents about your great uncle Bobby Cutler to them. You call him up. I'm sure he could not have been expecting your call in a million years. Uh, You tell him what you're doing, and what does he tell you? He says, well, I've got some things you should look at. Come up and meet me. So I drove to upstate New York, and there he showed me a six-volume handwritten diary that my great-uncle had written, spelling out his love for this young man. (laughs) 
<laughs> I mean, you know, it is so rare that people doing historical research could come across a gold mine of material that nobody has ever seen before. But there you had it, a six volume diary written by the guy who was the principal national security advisor to the president of the United States during the height of the Cold War. And how much of that was about this love affair or his love interest? And how much of it was just about normal goings on in the White House and foreign policy? 90%. It's basically styled as, it's almost a protracted love letter. I mean, it, it really is. It's it's all about his the waves of emotion rising from the heights of his passion for this young man. But as you noted, it, it is also a sad story. It's a tale of unrequited love in many ways because I think they were never able to physically consummate a relationship, They uh, ostensibly, from what we know. And Skip did not have reciprocate that deep passion for Bobby. He liked Bobby. He, he called him a, one of his best friends or his best friend even. They became very close emotionally, but it was not a passionate thing. Right. Explain. I mean, this is, this is so interesting because, I mean, you know, Robert Cutler was a blue blood Republican establishment Me- guy. Member of the Porcellian Club yeah. at Harvard. Right. <laughs> I mean, all the credentials of respectability in mid 20th century America. And the idea that he would be pouring out his guts in this diary about his infatuation with this young man is um, explain uh, the the psychology there. Well, you know, um, Bobby was uh, a remarkably um, passionate as a person, and he describes himself. He actually published an autobiography in 1965. And he descri- Which he gave no hint about his personal uh, sexual attraction. He certainly did not reveal it. I yeah. would say in reading it now, yeah. there are breadcrumbs. Right. There's actually a picture of Skip in the diary. Ah. But all he says is we became friends. In the diary or in excuse the autobiography? Me, excuse me, in the autobiography, right. yes. Yeah. And he also has a picture of another young man who was another lover of Skip's named Gail Hoffteaser. Mm-hmm who Bobby became attracted to as well in one of the down periods when Skip was pushing him away. Mm -hmm. So Bobby, uh, I'm sorry, I've lost the track there. What was your question? Yeah, yeah. No, I'm just trying to understand, uh, you know, get inside Robert Cutler's head into, you know, how he would come, how a man of such respectability and authority would be writing such potentially incriminating stuff in a lengthy diary. Well, you know, I think that's just the way he was wired as a person. After he said he had a passionate romance with a, a woman, or a, he, he fell in love with a woman in the 1920s, mm-hmm. but she rejected him. And after that, he had only a string of relationships with men for the next 30 years. Well, let me take Isakoff's question one step further, because the sort of uh, obvious question is how he could reconcile in his mind these feelings uh, that he acted on with other men and at the same time oversee the writing of, of this executive order that was so harmful to people in his own situation. Is that a case of compartmentalization? Was it uh, because he needed to protect himself? What did you conclude at the end of your research was his motivation? 
I will say, I think it is possible that because he was trailed by rumors of homosexuality, that he was homosexual, that maybe he didn't stand up and object to the sexual perversion portion of the order because he would be vulnerable to further allegations, and that would jeopardize his position. And it would have been professional suicide to do so. Well, if anything, as as you reveal in the book, when you go through the steps that led to that executive order, now, the context, of course, (coughs) it's the McCarthy era. Eisenhower has been trying to appease the McCarthyites in his party who have been demanding stricter security uh, controls to, to keep out subversives in the government. And although subversives in the common mind meant communists, because they actually couldn't find a whole lot of communists in the government, they found if they went after gays as well, they could claim you know more scalps of kicking out subversives from the government. The first draft of the executive order comes from the Justice Department, the Attorney General Herbert Brownell at the time, and it doesn't include the language of sexual perversion as one of the grounds for dismissal from the federal workforce. And Robert Cutler, the closeted gay man who was your uncle, then put that language in, put the words sexual perversion into the executive order. Well, to be clear, he didn't actually draft, create a new draft. What he did was he pointed uh, Herbert Brownell and the president to a draft of the rules, a draft executive order that had been prepared for President Truman and was sitting in, in the Justice Department. Right. And that draft had the sexual perversion terminology in it. So, but he he definitely steered the drafting in that right. way. Right. So I, he wasn't exactly involved in drafting and inserting the language itself, but yeah, it's about yeah. as close as you can get. Right, 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 <laughs> right. He pointed them to the language that included it. Do you think he consciously did that? That is really the key question, and I don't I don't know the answer to that. I can say that Bobby certainly was a person who believed in process and believed in having a dialogue within government to have it function the best way that it can. So when he reformed the National Security Council mm-hmm. and uh, enhanced it, he believed that the National Security Council, which had been neglected by President Truman, should actually operate as the preeminent national security body of the U.S. government. What happened is you'd have a fulsome debate within the National Security Council right. to arrive at the best policies. And I think he probably believed that was what had happened in Truman in the Truman administration development of this policy, that he was bringing forward a policy that had been reviewed and studied and hammered out. I want to get to the impact that this executive order had. And you've got some really eyebrow-raising stuff in the book about, you know, just what this meant for people who were gay and were working in the government. You quote from a security agent at the State Department, Peter Zolk, who boasted of being the, quote, hatchet man and disparaged hearings and due process for government employees who were accused as a waste of time. He would say, the son of a bitch is queer and out he goes. And then he later expressed some regret about the number of his targets who killed themselves, sometimes within minutes after leaving his office and this is, again, quoting from this guy, Salk. One guy, he barely left my office, and he must have had this thing in his coat pocket, and boom, right on the corner of 21st and Virginia, which is right outside the State Department. Yeah, it's horrendous. It's outrageous. And uh, 
You know, I, I only look on this era and think that our government's capacity to find a vulnerable minority and persecute that minority for political purposes should be recognized. And, you know, it happened then. It can happen again. And so uh, right-thinking citizens should be aware. Absolutely. Do you think that your great-uncle Robert Cutler was aware of the impact of this executive order on gays in the government? I don't know the answer to that. I never found evidence that he commented on it. He may have repressed it. He may not have wanted to know about it. In fact, as I describe, Skip, the man he fell in love with, himself fell under an investigation under Executive Order 10450, as did Steve Benedict. So he but had in the to end, no. So he had to have known. They didn't. I have no record that they told him ever. In fact, I what I show is that Skip tried to shield him from knowing about the investigation. He was afraid that Bobby was going to be confronted with it and afraid that Bobby would be pulled into it. But in the end, Bobby Cutler was never exposed. Any evidence that he was protected? Any evidence that Eisenhower knew? Because I think when he did leave of his own volition in the sense that he was not publicly exposed, Eisenhower said something like, uh, I'm losing my, my right-hand man, my right arm. So what did Ike know? We know only that I considered Bobby an, an indispensable part of his, his government. And what he actually knew about Bobby's sexual orientation is a cipher. But I think that it's very likely that he had some knowledge without knowing the details. But that's unsure. And let me ask you one follow-up question. He was, as we just said, he was never publicly outed. He was never discovered. And in, in a sense, he wasn't outed until you wrote this book. How do you think he would have reacted to this book being written and, and uh, his private life being exposed like this? My belief is that his love for this young man, Skip Coons, was so deep that if you transpose that to today's era of enlightened perception of homosexuality, that he would be happy to have the story told. He would think it was a sad story because it was an unrequited love. It was never consummated. But he would think it's a, a great story. In fact, one of his novels, he wrote two novels early in his life, and both of them are about unrequited love. And both of them are about, in their context, about men and women, the, the impossibility or the difficulty of men and women finding happiness together, which at the time was likely a perception of his own about his own fate. But I personally, well, I would like to think that he'd be happy that this story was told. A couple of uh, points you make in the book, which I think are worth discussing. He was never publicly outed, but J. Edgar Hoover was on to him at one point. In fact, uh, you know, he gets allegations from, I think, a White House correspondence clerk, the FBI does, that Cutler is gay. And this makes its way to Hoover's desk. But Hoover, who was so zealous about going after gays elsewhere in the government, doesn't, he gives Cutler a pass. Why? My belief is there, that there are two theories here. We right. don't know exactly why. But one, one thing that we do know is that Hoover, of course, was rumored to be gay. A lifelong bachelor, as, as they a, say. A lifelong yeah. bachelor with an extremely close association 
with his top assistant, Clyde Tolson. They had a spousal-like relationship, even though we don't know if it was ever consummated. There's so many pieces of evidence that suggest that he was gay, and all of them have to be evaluated and appraised in their own right. A lot of them are considered suspicious or untrustworthy. A lot of it is circumstantial. But the one piece that always sticks with me that is so incredible about Hoover is that he took pictures of Clyde Tolson sleeping. Yeah. There's nothing sexual there, right? But how intimate does that relationship have to be? Yeah. So my feeling is that Hoover, like Bobby, was an elderly bachelor with an abiding passion for men who could not afford to have an allegation of homosexuality against him in the public. And he recognized that the Bobby was in the exact same situation. So a kind of kinship. Yes, exactly. The other option is that Hoover recognized that Bobby was his conduit to Ike. Right. And that Bobby was extremely close to Ike. Right. So if he were to go after Bobby on a homosexuality allegation, that would really damage his relationship with Eisenhower. I want you to tell the story, uh, another anecdote you have in the book, about another closeted gay man in 1950s-era Washington, Joe Alsup, one of the most powerful, influential columnists at the time. And Alsop, of course, was very close to Chip Bolin, the uh, nominee for to be ambassador to the Soviet Union, who faced these allegations. And at one point, there's a confrontation among the three of them, Alsop, Bolin, and Cutler. Tell us what happened. So at this time, uh, Bolin's nomination is pending yeah. in the Senate for confirmation. Mm-hmm. The three men are at, at a tea party in Georgetown. And um, uh, at Boland's house, at Boland's house. Correct. Bobby makes a comment, in essence, trying to defend the president and John Foster Dulles and their handling of Boland's nomination, which had come under attack from McCarthy. John Foster Dulles was, of course, the secretary of state at the time. Correct. At that moment, just as things are getting heated, um, Alsop tells the story later in his memoirs, he sees Boland's jaw quivering with anger because, in fact, at this time, Bolin's brother had been impugned in this as well. So Mrs. Bolin, Avis Bolin, comes in and intentionally knocks over a teapot to break up the tension. <laughs> so, uh, uh, And Alsop was kind of threatening Cutler at that point, right? He's suggesting or about to suggest that, uh, what's the phrase that... Uh, incorrect uh, tastes of love. love. That, that, yeah, that Cutler has incorrect tastes of love. Well, the real threat was that he wanted Cutler to re- leak him information. <laughs> right, Alsop exactly. was also a Porcellian club from Harvard, <laughs> and they'd known each other for many years. Yeah. But Alsop told Bobby that if he didn't release information either confidentially or on the record, either way, that the administration would suffer adverse political coverage in the newspapers. Whether this also uh, included a threat of revelation of his homosexuality, I don't know. You know, what's so fascinating about that, the whole premise of purging gays from the government as a national security threat was that they were susceptible to blackmail. 
never, the, the never idea proven. was yeah. the idea was that the Soviets could blackmail somebody and get national security secrets. Actually, the one documented case we appear to have, it wasn't the Soviets trying to blackmail Bobby Cutler. It, it was, was a journalist and trying a, and, to get him to leak and a to him. and a closeted yeah. gay journalist at that. I mean, the journalist. layers of complexity <laughs> yeah. and ambiguity yeah. are so fascinating. You capture them so well yeah. in, in yeah. the book. I, I want to get to just some other portions of the book which have not gotten a lot of attention, which is that Cutler, regardless of all this, was a key figure at some of the most you know momentous events of the Cold War, 1950s America, confrontations with the Soviet Union, the coup in Guatemala, the coup in Iran, nuclear strategy. Cutler was at the center of all of that. Yes, he was. And um, the key thing that he did was he managed the National Security Council and made it possible for Ike to run the government amid all these stressors. I mean, this was an incredibly challenging time for the United States. And it was a period of remarkable growth and stability. If you don't count the fact that we overthrew governments that were democratically elected in two right. countries. Um, so, yeah, yeah. Um, I mean, he was sort of a moderating figure, at least compa- in comparison to Dulles, for instance, who was much more hawkish. Right? A- absolutely, absolutely. Yeah. And I, I think that the key thing, his key contribution in terms of being a moderating influence, is that right after Ike took office. He made it possible for J. Robert Oppenheimer, the physicist who was the father of the nuclear bomb, to come into the National Security Council and urge the president and his counselors to be more open with the American public about the threat of nuclear war. And uh, this led to what was called a policy of candor. Mm -hmm. And it ultimately led to Ike's speech before the United Nations in December of 1953, called the Adams for Peace speech, which in turn led to the creation of the International Atomic Energy Agency, Mm -hmm. which to this day is the world's foremost agency for controlling the proliferation of nuclear weapons. Yeah. What's so poignant about this part of the story is that someone like your uh, great uncle who, you know, provided all of this public service, worked so hard for the country, and yet was uh, not allowed to be who he really was. Yes. Right. It's an absolutely fascinating book, Ike's Mystery Man, The Secret Lives of Robert Cutler. Peter Schenkel, thanks for joining us on Buried Treasure. Thank you very much. And good luck with the book. Thank you. Thanks to Peter Schenkel for joining us on this episode of Buried Treasure. Don't forget to subscribe to Skullduggery on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to your podcasts. And tell us what you think. Leave a review. Be sure to follow us on social media at Pod. We'll talk to you on Friday.